I just got back from Michigan. That is where I'm from. I grew up in northern Michigan, and so those are my people, and uh, we go back and visit my family, and it's so much fun, and I got to tell you, it's God's country up there. It is filled with lakes and trees, and there's a lot of hunting where I'm from. It's, it's hunting territory. There's lots of deer, a lot of wild turkeys, a lot of everything. I've got a nephew who just made some squirrel stew the other day. So, um, you know, when, when deer season opens, they cancel school. Seriously, they cancel the first day of deer season where I'm from. There's so much hunting that happens there. So there are some, um, some folks there who, um, that got some new dogs, and they named them Rolex and Timex. And I thought, gosh, those are some good hunting dogs. You guys got there some good hunting dogs. And they looked at me and said, Lisa, them aren't hunting dogs. Them are watchdogs. Well, hey, we had a great time traveling. Um, you know, I've got four kids, six and under. So I got to tell you, it's never easy to travel with kids that age. But my kids are great. They're six, five, three, and one and a half. And um, we just have the best time with them. And these are, this is such a fun age because they just want to tell you about everything they do all the time. They are so filled with life and enthusiasm and excitement. I mean, my husband and I can't go anywhere without picking them up from church or from VBS, from school and they're like, mommy, look what I did. Daddy, look what I did. Look, look, look. They're so excited to show us what it is that they've done. Even my 18-month-old, she, you know, is learning all kinds of new tricks. She's learning to wave and blow kisses, and she just wants to get your attention because she wants that affirmation of all those new things that she's doing. I mean, you turn around, and that girl can climb up onto a dining room table chair and then on top of the table and do a little dance and look at me, look at me. I mean, look out, world. This girl is, she is going places. But kids are so fun because they love to show you everything that they do. And, you know, this is actually a really normal part of child development. I mean, this is part of what they go through to learn what it is, what it's acceptable, and what people approve of them. The thing is, I find us living in a culture where we are never growing out of this look-at-me mentality that we have that we start to develop as kids. Um, You know, you've probably heard of a selfie by now. You've probably even posted a few dozen yourself on various social media sites. You know, a selfie, you take a picture with your phone and then post it. But have you noticed that we've kind of even moved beyond that to another level of the selfie? Have you seen this, the selfie stick? Have you seen these? People are starting to carry these around with them. Just, you know, whip it out because they're ready for taking an even better selfie by repositioning your phone out even further to get that better selfie that you can now post on a social media station. So, you know, social media has really helped encourage this look at me mindset. Whether you're on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever your favorite one is, um, there is all kinds of opportunities for us to exploit our accomplishments, to tell people anything and everything about yourselves, right? What you ate, what you wore, where you went, who you did it with, when you did it. I mean, has anyone ever wished on Facebook for a TMI button? Too much information, right? I mean, I've got friends who like to share just the exploits of potty training with the whole world. And, you know, yay for those kids. That is awesome. But wow, we have a lot of sharing going on. Now, you know, social media has begun to shape our culture so dramatically because so many people are using it. 
This is a stat as of April 2015. There are 144 billion monthly active Facebook users. That's a lot of people. 72% of adult online users visit Facebook at least once a month, and there are 936 million people on Facebook every day. So when we've got a culture that is using this kind of phenomenon so regularly, it begins to shape and mold what the normatives of culture look like. So this means that millions of people are really participating in and buying into this look at me mentality, everything that I am doing. This creates culture. So our world has begun to encourage this look at me mentality. It means that we get so focused on ourselves and what our image is that impression management begins to fill a lot of our time. So impression management is really monitoring what it is that everybody sees of you and views of you and thinks of you and believes to be true of you. I mean, it's kind of like we have this invisible jury box that we each carry around with us. And in this jury box, we're constantly filling it with people who we think or we perceive are judging us, people whose opinions are important to us. So we each fill our own imaginary jury box with people like maybe our parents, maybe our boss, maybe our coach, maybe um, our friends, our peers, um, maybe even church people. I mean, we fill this, this jury box with friends and family, anybody that is important to us and what their opinion of us matters to us. The thing is with this jury box, it's not really what they think of you. It's what we think they think of you, that we are worried about and why we spend so much time on this idea of impression management. Someone once said, in our 20s, we live to please other people. In our 30s, we get tired of trying to please others. So you just get mad at them for making you worry about it. And then in your 40s, you realize nobody's thinking about you anyway. (laughs) We are a culture that is filled with hyper-sharing. We are obsessed with ourselves. And a lot of this, I truly believe, is because people are lonely and they are desperate for attention any way that they can get it. Now, this happens in all spheres of life. We see this in the sports arena as sports stars crave attention for their attributes. We see this in Hollywood as actors exploit what they do. We see this in the business world. We see this in politics. I mean, it's everywhere. And before we get too down on social media for um, this me-focused culture, I mean, I use Facebook, I like Facebook, I, I think it's fun to stay in touch with what people are doing, so I'm not down on Facebook use. It's more of helping us understand how this is starting to shape the world around us and what our call and what our role is as Christians in our culture. So I want to show you a quote, um, because this idea of never being good enough or seeking people's approval has been around for a long time. So I'm going to show you this quote, and I want you to try and think of who it is that said this, okay? Here's the quote. I have done nothing. I have no ability to do anything that will live in the memory of mankind. My life has been spent in vain and idle aspirations and in ceaseless rejected prayers that something should be the result of my existence beneficial to my own species. Any guesses? 
All right, John Quincy Adams. I think I heard someone say it. There's a history buff out there. John Quincy Adams. He was president, for crying out loud, president of the United States. And this is still something that he struggled with, something that he had this desperate need for recognition, even beyond the accomplishments that he had given to our country. Now, when Jesus came on the scene into the ancient world, um, this was something that people were struggling with as well. Um, They weren't sure what to believe or what to think because they were so aware or sensitive to what other people thought. Look at this verse in John 12. John 12, 42, 43 says, Yet at the same time, many, even among the believers, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved what? Human praise. They loved human praise more than praise from God. See, even those people were craving acceptance and love by others. And don't get me wrong, self-image is important. It's something that um, we need to have a healthy sense of self, but not in a narcissistic way. Um, But we need to have a sense for how others perceive us so that we can have a a healthy sense for who it is that we are in society. So we do rely on other people's perceptions and judgments of ourselves to help develop ourselves. But sometimes... Sometimes we get so focused on what others see of us that even when we do good things, it doesn't come, it's not about doing the good thing for the right reason. It becomes about showcasing it to the world around us, what it is that we do so that they can have a better sense of who we are. Oh, if only people could appreciate all that we do in good acts of service. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, we feel like Superman. We feel superhuman when we do good things for other people. I mean, Superman had a lot going for him. He had x-ray vision. He could bend steel with his bare hands. He was smart. He was strong. He was brave. But the thing is, I mean, Superman really had some issues, if you ever think about it. I mean, he really could have used some counseling. He lost both biological parents and his home planet, right? And it never seemed to impact him. He had a lonely heart. Superman lived lonely all the time. And how about maybe a little therapy for someone who wants to wear blue tights and a cape under his clothes all the time, right? I mean, Superman did have a few issues. Um, This whole idea that being um, superhuman is something that we all get caught up. Even the disciples got caught up in doing that as well. You know, as the disciples hung with Jesus, they were a small group that ate with him, that traveled with him, that lived with him, saw him do ministry all the time. And it wasn't very long before even the disciples got in a fight about who was the greatest among them, who should get the most recognition among them. And Jesus answered them very simply. He actually, um, he called a little child to him and he said, take care of the children. The least of these is the greatest. And so Jesus really called us to this model. He called these grown men, these leaders of the Christian movement, to care and minister for the children, the weakest among them. And Jesus had this heart that when we are involved with ministering and caring for the weakest among us, then we see God made strong through us. God shows up strong and able, and we begin to see where true strength comes from, that it doesn't lie in ourself, that there is a strength beyond our superhuman qualities that only comes from God. 
Now, Paul, someone who wrote a lot of the New Testament, he preached the gospel, he planted churches, and he really began to get a a, a little bit of a sense for this, even as he struggled with this idea of people-pleasing. Let's look at these scriptures. First one's in Galatians 1.10. It says, am I, Paul, now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And then again, in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, he says, I, again, this is Paul, care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court indeed. I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So even as we see Paul, this like superhero of the faith, it's not like he didn't care what people thought. It says, I I cared little. He still cared, but he was really actively trying to put that behind him. I mean, it is so ironic to me that people who have this grandiose sense of self, we kind of dub that having a Messiah complex, that that person has a Messiah complex. Because where for sure Jesus was the Messiah, he was the first to really put forth a very humble sense of self. Jesus modeled this life of being a servant and what a servant was all about. You know, servants do things that aren't typically seen. They operate behind the scenes. They clean, they cook, they do the laundry, they take care of the car, they take care of the yard work. Um, They do things to make sure that everything's running smoothly behind the scenes. I mean, if they're doing their job, then you actually don't even know that the servants are around. And so scripture calls us to have the mindset of a servant, Let's look at the scripture in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus was so much of a servant that he even humbly went to the cross and took your sin and my sin upon himself. Someone who was completely innocent took all of our wrongdoing upon himself so that as he died on the cross, we could be forgiven. We could be set free. We could have life eternal by believing and trusting our lives in him. And he became this role model of what it means to sacrifice, of what it means to be a servant. You see, when we look at this idea of Clark Kent and Superman, Clark Kent was someone who took a disguise to reveal the real Superman. But Jesus did not come disguising who God was. Jesus came revealing to us who our God is. See, Jesus was not a servant in spite of the fact that he was God. Jesus became a servant to show us the fact that he is God. And this is who our God is. Because a servant would be willing to sacrifice. And so we begin to see this idea of service in a very different light because of what God did. Service is about sacrificing yourself. Now, sacrifice is not a very popular concept in this look-at-me world. We are so busy wanting to get noticed that we don't have much time to give to other people, to really share of ourselves. 
Now, the Bible talks a lot about this idea of sacrifice. Service and and sacrifice seem to be things that are very near and dear to the heart of God. And so God spends a lot of time in Scripture helping us understand these ideas because he wants us, as men and women who follow Jesus, to live differently in this world. Because it's not about this look-at-me mentality of elevating ourselves, but reaching out to others. There's a place in the Old Testament where there's a story about David that I want to talk about today. Now, David is the one, maybe you remember stories about him, David and Goliath. He's the one that was the little shepherd boy who took five small stones and and killed the giant Goliath from the Philistines. Now, David's also the shepherd boy who was crowned king of the Israel people. And so um, he was uh, someone who loved God, who really sought to follow God with all of his heart. But David made some mistakes along the way. And so in this particular place in scripture, God had called David to go back to the land in Judah. And David had made a mistake with God's people and God had punished him by sending a a plague on the land. And so David was trying to make it right with God and he was going to build an altar. Now an altar is a place in scripture where um, people would come and for David, this was going to be like a a, a place set in, in time, made out of rock that would really commemorate this moment that David acknowledged his sin, that he was wrong, that he had chosen selfishly rather than listening to the things of God. And so God uses this prophet named Gad to uh, tell David to build this altar. So this is what the scripture says in 2 Samuel 24, 18 and 19. On that day, Gad, who's the prophet, went to David, the king, and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. So Arana, he sees David King David coming with his procession to his house. And David tells him that he is going to need his threshing floor. Now, a threshing floor would be something that Arana had created as part of his home and his livelihood. Um, It was typically a round or circular area that was covered with either rock or wood. And this would be where they would would beat the, the, the grain. They would thresh the grain so that it could be made usable. And so you see King David coming to your home, right? The king comes before you and says, I I need that. So Arana is like, well, whatever you need, king, here you go. You know, it's all yours. So this is how Arana responds in 1 Chronicles 21, 23. Arana said to David, take it. Let my lord, the king, do what pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all this. Now, David could have been like, cool, thanks, we're good, we got this, all right, no problem. But David knew the cost of living selfishly. David had made some decisions in his past that had cost him and his family dearly for the selfish decisions that David had made. And David was seeking to honor God by building this altar And so David went beyond this look-at-me mentality of selfishness. And this is how David responded to him. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, the king, King David, replied to Arana, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Now, God would go on to honor David's sacrifice in this spot as this altar was being built by David that was a sacrificial altar that was built. 
Later, when David's son Solomon would build the temple for all of Israel, this place, this, uh, this threshing floor, would become part of the temple. In fact, it would become the Holy of Holies. It would become the very place where God's presence resided. Second Chronicles 3.1 tells us this, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Now, do you know that on Mount Moriah, this was a very special spot to God. This is the spot where God had called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, God did not have Abraham do that. He provided a ram instead for Abraham to sacrifice instead of his son. Now, Mount Moriah is also the place where the temple was built by Solomon, Um, In this place, the Holy of Holies, the very God's presence dwelt. And that when Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for our sins, on that day, the temple veil was split in two and the Holy of Holies was revealed because the very presence of God was now residing with the people through the sacrifice of what Jesus did. And today, this spot is still sacred. On it today resides the Dome of the Rock. This is probably a familiar image to you that you've seen in and out of the news because it is possibly one of the most hotly, contentiously debated pieces of land that exists. Currently, it is under Muslim control. It's a holy site to the Muslims as well because they believe this is the spot where Muhammad ascended to heaven. It is also a very sacred site to the Jews where they believe that the temple must be rebuilt. Now, next summer in June 2016, my husband Carl and I will be leading a trip to the Holy Land, and we want to invite you to come with us as our church family. Um, This is such an amazing opportunity to go and see this place of sacrifice and and to walk amongst the Holy Land, walk where Jesus walked and ministered. Um, Truly, a trip like this is something that um, helps you read your Bible differently and really changes how you live your life because all of a sudden you've walked in those same places where Jesus walked. So if you're interested, we'd love to get you more information. It's out at the Resource Center, and um, you can prayerfully consider if you and your friends and family would like to, to join us on this trip next summer. But this story that we're talking about today, this story of David, is often one that's kind of hidden in the Old Testament that we don't talk about a lot. But it is amazing to see how God profoundly honored David's commitment to sacrifice um, that he gave to the Lord. David said, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And God loves a sacrificial heart because it is what begins to transition us, our hearts, from this look at me mentality to getting our eyes back on God and what God is able to do. I mean, if you've ever found yourself looking for applause in this world, um, you might even start to think of yourself as an approval addict as you start to look at all the ways that you're seeking approval in the world around you. Now, approval addicts don't just want applause. But they also react really strongly to criticism because if you say something bad about me, that starts to shatter all that I believe about myself because my whole perception of self is built on what other people think. You might be an approval addict if you constantly compare yourself with others or maybe you even start to get competitive in ordinary situations about who's going to get the remote first or who's going to get to the grocery checkout first. When you start to get competitive in just even very routine situations, 
Maybe you start to think that you don't feel very important in this life or you don't feel very special. Maybe you get envious of other people's success. Why do they get that, God, and I don't get that? Maybe you want to impress important people in your life. Maybe you're worried that someone's going to think something badly about you. Maybe you're worried that someone might start to think that you are an approval addict. But there is good news for us today, for those of us who struggle with this idea of approval addiction, because God has a solution for all of those who struggle with pride and worry about what others think. God's solution to pride and worry is to do something that no one else will ever know about. God's solution for approval addicts is secret service. Now, our National Secret Service, these are the folks that, you know, wear the sunglasses and the earpieces, and they usually are seen guarding the president or other important people from the enemy. Um, They are this elite force that are there to serve and to protect. And now, whereas sometimes they're very public in their protection, often they're behind the scenes, and we might not even know that they are there. Now, God has this idea for us that doing good things in secret is a way to protect us against the enemy of selfishness, the enemy of pride, the enemy of getting caught up in this look at me mentality. Here's what scripture says in Matthew 6, 1 and 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Oh, giving in secret, really? I mean, that's no fun. How is that going to help us with our impression management when we need to let people know that we are a good person doing good things? I need a royal trumpet announcement to let people know. Because we want people to think that we're good, that we care, that we do good things. Did I mention I did the dishes tonight? Did I mention I cooked dinner? Did I mention I did the laundry? I helped the kids with homework. Did I mention I got the car oil changed? Did I mention I mowed the lawn? Did I mention I gave this? Did I mention I did this? Did I mention I, I, I? John Ortberg says this. Here is the problem. When I do something good, I'm intensely aware of it, right? We're aware that we did something good, and we think the world should be aware that we did something good, too. Richard Foster says this in Celebration of Discipline. More than any other single way, the grace of humility is worked into our lives is through the discipline of service. Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. And nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh whines against service, but it screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and for recognition. See, when we do an act of kindness in secret, we start to distance ourselves from the temptation to believe that our performance is connected to some kind of action. And because of that, we start to think that our worth is equal to that as a person. But you see, your worth is not connected to what you do. It is who you were created to be as a son and daughter of the living almighty God. 
And when we do a service act in secret, no one knows what you did except God. And in doing that, it begins to free you from what other people think of you. It frees you from the opinions that other people have. I mean, can you imagine living in a way where you could actually feel love towards someone who had uh, disapproval, who had expressed disapproval of you or something that you had done? What? How does that work? How do I lovingly express love and graciousness to someone who was disapproving of something that I did? You see, secret acts of service begin to provide freedom for us. Freedom from how smart we think we need to be, how rich we think we need to be, how attractive, how successful. If you find yourself doing a lot of self-checks, okay, you're constantly comparing yourself to others and about people's accomplishments. Like, oh, have I done enough with my life? What have I done? I don't know. Look at what they've done. Maybe you're doing the self-check of deception and offering a lot of excuses, and so you deceive people. Like if I was going to be late for something, and I, I was like, I just didn't plan ahead of time, but instead I don't want people to think badly of me. So instead of saying, I'm really sorry. I did not plan well. I did not leave enough time. Man, I hit traffic. There was construction. I mean, I come up with all kinds of excuses to deceive you into thinking I'm a better person than I actually am. Or maybe the idea of resentment, that you're so closely tied to someone's important opinion of you and that when you don't get approval from them, you start to resent them because you're not getting what you need from them. So when these things start to creep into our lives, maybe we need to get away from the eyes of others. Maybe what we need to do is completely get out of the limelight. And when you start doing something in secret, no one knows what you're doing. And so no one's giving you an opinion. And all of a sudden you're not listening for that opinion because no one knows that you've done it. I recently was teaching a class on spiritual formation and I gave students the assignment of doing a secret act of service that week and reporting on it. Here's what one of my adult students said. I was trying to figure out what to do this week and I was surprised to find myself struggling to find something that I could actually do in secret. I not realized how many things I do that people know about. What I decided to do was to clean a part of the church building. Now, it's usually done by a certain guy, but I knew he was busy, and I was just going to do it after the service Sunday. And when I finally figured out what I was going to do, I was excited and a little nervous trying to figure out how I was going to keep it a secret. It's just a foreign concept to not tell someone what I was doing. I don't think I consciously try and get people's attention all the time, but I definitely found myself struggling to not tell even my wife what I did. I enjoyed doing the project, and that was the easy part. The hard part was keeping it between me and God and being okay with that. I fought the pride to not come up and say, everyone, look what I did. I think this really revealed something about myself that I always pushed off as being okay. I spent some time just thinking about my attitude, and I came to the conclusion that this thought process is something I kind of need to work on. I've been unaware of my attitude towards the giving of my time and efforts when I do things. Instead of just being happy with doing it, I expect the gratitude, and when it isn't there, I feel empty. So when I do things in public, I get the recognition, and that feeds the attitude. It is a self-righteous attitude and almost arrogant. It was very, very deep down there, but it was there. Oh, man, it is hard to do good things in secret. 
when my family and I were flying from back from Michigan to California, it is always a thing. But, you know, one of our flights was late, and so that made our connection insanely tight. I mean, we thought we were missing this flight in Chicago. Carl and I had the plan. He was going to run ahead, and I was just going to run as best as I could with all the kids, and he was going to stop the plane so that we could all get on. But, you know, the best laid plans. We had this plan, but our three-year-old and our one-year-old did not think this was a good idea. So they both planted themselves firmly on the airport floor and let us know they were not having any of this. So we each had to pick up a kid. We're not quite in the shape we used to be. So running through the airport, carrying a one-year-old and a three-year-old takes a little more time. God bless our six-year-old and our five-year-old. They were just running as hard as they could. Believe it or not, we actually made it to the gate and we were able to get on the plane. And we were getting onto board and we were on Southwest. So like I had the first get on with some kids and Carl was going to get on later and I was going to save the seats. So I got up there and I'm like huffing and puffing and he's like, where's the rest of your family? I'm like, how do you know who I am? He's like, are you the party of six? I'm like, Yes, I am. He's like, have your husband get up here. I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, we've been waiting for you. We get on the plane. The flight attendant at the door was like, hey, you're the family of six. Come on in. Someone had called ahead and let us know, look out for this family of six. We have no idea who did this. But this act of secret service was such a blessing to our family. So here it is in a nutshell. Every once in a while, try and do something good. And don't let anybody know it was you who did it. Resign completely from impression management. Pick someone in your life and immerse them in prayer. And don't tell them you did it. Make a lavish financial donation or help someone who's struggling financially and don't tell a soul that you did it. Maybe cook someone a meal or mow someone's lawn or clean a room or clean a house. Maybe memorize a scripture and let God just work in you in an amazing way that week and don't tell a soul who did it. Maybe you need to declare a secret service day at your house. You just completely resign from having any intentions of things you need to get done and you make yourself available to your people to all the people in your house, and you just serve them as they have needs that arise through the day. It's hard. This is hard to do to totally let go of our own agenda. But you know what? If we start to practice this discipline of secret service, if we start to do this enough, we start to get free from this inner need that we have to let people know how good we are. Private acts of service just between you and God are something that build your intimacy with God. And when we build that, inti- that, in- that intimacy with God, um, it allows us to get free from what other people start to think about. And we start to hear from the voice of God who you are and who you were created to be. So here's your challenge today. As followers of Jesus, we have been enlisted in God's secret service. All right? You're in, you have clearance, you have the training, and it's go time, people. So here is your question for the day. What will be your operation, K-I-O-T-D-L? Operation, keep it on the down low. All right? So I want you to grab your sunglasses, grab your earpiece this week, and go on a mission for God. And keep it on the down low. And God will begin to reveal his heart to you, his blessings for you when you keep it secret. Isaiah 45, 3 says, I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name.
As the worship team comes up, I just want to invite us as we get ready to close with just a a closing song, um, just to go before the Lord in just a moment of silence. And I want you just to think of this as your response time. Like, ask God. We are in a holy place. We are in a sacred space. The Holy Spirit is here. You ask your Father, who is it, God, that you want me to reveal your heart to this week? Who is it you want me to do this secret act of service? And then put it on your calendar. Maybe even tomorrow. Make tomorrow your secret service day. And see what God has for you. Let's just go before the Lord and ask God. Ask God right now what it is, who it is. What is that secret act of service he has for you? thank you that you are a God who has taught us about sacrifice and being a servant. Oh, Jesus, would you help us to be men and women who can model that in this look at me world? Help us, Father, to be servants of God Almighty.